Welcome to the CRISPR revolution. This is CRISPR Cuts, a podcast dedicated to the world of genome engineering. Take a break and join us as we guide conversations with an expert CRISPR cast about this cutting edge science. Hi, welcome to a new episode of CRISPR Cuts. We are starting the year strong with a collaboration podcast with New England Biolabs. This episode will be hosted by Lydia Morrison, host of the Lessons from Lab and Life podcast. Lydia is joined by Brett Rob, Scientific Director of RNA at NEB, and Kevin Holden, Head of Science at Synthigo. Together, they will interview Dr. Neville Sanjana, a core faculty member at the New York Genome Center, about their recent publication where chemically modified guide RNAs were used to enhance CRISPR-Cas13 knockdown in human cells. Hope you all enjoy this joint venture. Hi, Brett, Kevin, and Neville. Thanks so much for joining us today. Glad to be here. Thank you. I wanted to dive right in and ask you to tell us about your recent publication, Neville. Yeah, so this work, which was really a collaboration with everybody who's here on this this call today and some other folks in all of our groups and labs, explored chemically modified guide RNAs for use in an RNA-targeting CRISPR enzyme called Cas13. What are the advantages of using chemically modified guide RNAs as opposed to other methods like of gene knockdown? Are there drawbacks? Are there advantages? Why, why did you choose that? I think the natural comparison for RNA targeting CRISPR enzymes or really any RNA targeting system is going to be RNA interference, which has been a huge discovery over the last 20, 30 years. And I think the most exciting thing about RNAi, RNA interference, is that it's already entering the clinic. So you asked about drawbacks. So there are some drawbacks. RNAi is well known in the literature that it's prone to off-target effects. And there's now advanced algorithms that can help you design different kinds of RNAi, like shRNA that are virally delivered or siRNA that are chemically synthesized. And you can use these algorithms to predict what is a better RNAi target but this off-target issues, they're, they're kind of always a concern with these approaches. The other issue is that RNAi doesn't use a CRISPR enzyme. It uses an endogenous nuclease, these proteins like DICER and the RIS complex. And these proteins have a particular uh, localization within the cell that they, they work in. So they're found mostly in the cytoplasm. So for RNA targets in the nucleus, like non-coding RNAs, which is something that my lab studies a lot of non-coding genome regulation and non-coding RNAs, they're really not possible to target using RNAi methods. Now, there's a lot of RNAs that are not in the cytoplasm. Those are much easier to target. So when we say that this, this is now entering the clinic, which is truly amazing for RNAi, you know, whatever, 20 plus years from the initial discovery to be, F, there's, you know, now in the last two or three years, it's an, there are FDA-approved therapies that use these RNAi reagents. The first one is, is the alnylam drug used to treat a very rare form of amyloidosis. I mean, there's many of these different hereditary uh, mutations. And so, I mean, this is, yeah, it's rare. It's a debilitating progressive disease, fatal, and it's just caused by buildup over time of this, this like amyloid in brain, heart, all sorts of organs. And this RNAi is great. It, it targets, regardless of the mutation you might have in this gene, TTR, the RNAi can target the gene and degrade it. And that transcript is available in the cytoplasm. So it's an mRNA 
messenger RNA that can be can be degraded. So I think, you know, we're just seeing kind of like the beginning of these RNAi therapeutics. And I think there's a lot they can do. There's some things that they can't do. And I think in both categories, actually, because it's not just like you, you know, one thing and, and done. I mean, we see even, this is a little bit of a tangent, but we see with Cas9, you see so many different, or with DNA targeting CRISPRs, you see so many different approaches for, say, sickle cell anemia now, right? That's a disease where there's many different gene editing approaches. So I think it's the same thing with these kinds of uh, drugs that we're seeing entering the clinic that use RNAi, that there actually might be many therapeutic opportunities that are RNAi-based, that are Cas13-based. But Cas13 certainly has, I think, some very unique things um, that are possible, like targeting in the nucleus. Hey, Neville, this is, uh, this is Kevin from Synthago here, and it was really great to work with you on this publication and this research. You talked a little bit about your motivation for, I guess, exploring the ability of the Cas13 nucleases to work effectively in cells compared to, to other types of, of gene knockdown. Just thinking, you, you mentioned also, you know, working with SBE Cas9, and really a previous limitation of working with the Cas13 nucleases was, has been the ability to utilize them in, in primary cells such as human T cells. What, what was really your motivation to want to do that work in that cell type and also your motivation for wanting to protect the guide RNAs? That's a great question. Yeah. So in, in our lab, we also have a lot of interest in understanding immunotherapy and other kind of breakthrough technology of the last uh, decade and understanding both in our earlier work, why does it fail? And in many cases, it, it doesn't succeed for the patient. What kinds of tumor mutations enable tumors to evade immunotherapies. And we're also very interested with very recent work in the lab that hopefully I come back and tell you about next time, about how do we engineer better T cells? How do we supercharge T cells so we can avoid that, that we can make the failure rate drop down? Or right now, these kinds of chimeric antigen receptor T cells, they're, they're basically approved for, for very specific kinds of cancers, mostly liquid tumors, blood cancers. And there's a whole lot of cancer that isn't that, right? You know, solid tumors, we do a lot of work on um, melanoma, do some work on pancreatic cancer, you don't really see CAR-T therapies there. And so it'd be great if we could engineer CAR-T therapies that are effective there. So our, our motivation with working with primary cells, like, like human T cells, was so that we can do things like this, that we can engineer better CAR-T, better TCRT, better, better kinds of these T cell immunotherapies. And one thing that is, I think, foremost in, men, in the minds of like synthetic biologists or genome engineers that are, that are doing this kind of work is that CAR-Ts, even in cases where they work, you commonly have very severe side effects during treatment like these CRS or cytokine release syndrome. And that might be that we're just pushing these T cells to be very aggressive, very active. And maybe that we need just a little bit more finesse in the approach. So one thing you might imagine doing is on the initial infusion of these engineered T cells back into the patient, you can imagine supercharging them for a week or two by targeting specific proteins transcripts using Cas13 knockdown, and then having that be on for a focused period of a week, two weeks, and then go away. And so that's where I think Cas13 can be perhaps better than permanent genome modification where you say, knock out the immune checkpoint PD-1 or something like that in these T cells. This is just kind of like our interest, and this is something that, that we've been trying to do since the work that we, we did with you guys. But you, know, you could imagine flipping that around also, that you could temporarily modify tumor cells and go to the other side of that immune or that checkpoint synapse where they have all these things that they display, these immunoligands on their, on their cell surface that actually kind of push the T cells away. So you could imagine transiently 
knocking those down. And that sounds kind of crazy. Oh, you're just going to deliver this to a tumor and, you know, transiently reshape the tumor microenvironment. But, you know, we already have approved therapies that are kind of in a similar vein. Like for melanoma, we have oncolytic viruses that are approved where you just locally inject at the site of the melanoma, you inject the virus. And so you could imagine engineering a virus with Cas13 that, so this is maybe getting a little away from chemical modification, but you can imagine engineering virus Cas13 that does something similar, remodels that tumor microenvironment, makes it easier for your CAR T to come in. So I think this was what we had in, in mind when we started working with you guys. This was the long-term vision that we're making slow progress toward. Yeah, and maybe just to recap, follow on, specifically thinking about how you can get these systems to work in these cell types. Maybe you can talk a little bit about what motivated you to, to explore the the modification space in the guide? The modifications were really, there was a, a pretty simple rationale for them, but I think it's something that, that probably everybody can understand now, now that much of the world has been exposed to modified RNA through the COVID vaccines that have just been truly amongst the most amazing science we've seen this last year. So by chemically modifying the guide RNAs, what we do is we extend their usually short half-lives. I've mentioned already that even water is dangerous for these short RNAs. So we, we extend their usually very short half-lives and, and can, can make Cas13 work instead of just working for hours, can now work for, for days or, or weeks. But what we didn't know before we started working with, with all of you was how do we go about doing this? This hadn't been done with really any Cas13 before. And so the question was, you know, do we just maximally modify every single base? Are there certain places, certain modifications or certain placement of the modifications that that are better. And that's really, I think, the heart of the paper that we put together was saying what modifications are good and where do we put them. And I think it was pretty worthwhile to do this study because I don't think we could have just looked at Cas9 and guessed it right off the bat that we'd just do the same things. I mean, first of all, the guide RNAs, this is perhaps a bit technical discussion, but the guide RNAs for Cas13 are a bit different than for Cas9. They have quite a different structure. And so I think it's really great that we did this very systematic study. And I'm very grateful for Synthigo for entertaining a whole bunch of requests during that, that process. Great. Hey, Neville, it's, it's Brett from NEB here. I had a question. Many CRISPR-based approaches routinely use mRNA or plasmids or, or viruses, as you were just mentioning, to introduce the, the nuclease of the, the editing reagents. I was wondering if you could just sort of talk us through what do you see as the advantages of, of using the protein? That's a great question. And, you know, this is something that we very explicitly tested in the paper. You know, during the revision, I think this got buried a little bit maybe in the, in the supplement, but we did do some work where we actually looked at the timing of the delivery of Cas13 protein alongside the, the chemically modified guide RNAs. And something that we saw in many different forms of delivery, I think we looked at protein mRNA and um, uh, having plasmid or an integrated transgene we saw that if the Cas13 protein is not available when you put in those, those chemically modified guides, things are just a lot less efficient. They still work. You still see knockdown, but it's a lot less efficient. And I think we have this experiment with mRNA, with the Cas13 delivered as mRNA. And there you can see that if you co-deliver, you really don't get efficient knockdown. But if you deliver the mRNA in advance, such that the protein is already made and waiting around in the cell, then when you put in those chemically modified guides, things work really well. And so I think the really nice thing that we were able to take away from that is that, hey, we can actually 
do this ex vivo, we can make these RNPs, these ribonucleoprotein complexes, where we get this really nice Cas13 protein that came from your group. And so thank you, you guys, for making this protein. And then complex it just in a test tube, basically, just in a, you know, like a salt buffer, and then deliver it with electroporation or nucleofection uh, directly into these primary cell types. So that was super exciting, I think, work that we were able to do and totally motivated by this idea that chemically modified guide RNAs, you know, if they're just waiting around, they, there is going to be some, you're going to lose some effect, some impact if the protein is not there. Yeah, Neville, I had a kind of a follow-on question from that. So you, you mentioned utilizing techniques like nucleofection to introduce the, the protein and the modified guides into the cells in, in vitro, essentially. Do you foresee any challenges or potential applications vis-a-vis with the modifications, perhaps for uh, any types of in vivo targeting approaches? Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a fantastic question. I think always with genome editing, genome engineering, transcriptome engineering, the million-dollar question, the much harder question, at least where we are in the field right now, is always delivery, right? And this is, this is something that we, I would say the study, we really didn't focus on this too much. I think it's something we, we got to think about carefully in, in the future. I think here, you know, there's many different things you can imagine doing, right? You can imagine modifying, you know, just sticking with the RNP idea, the ribonucleic protein, you can imagine actually having a modified form of Cas13 that maybe has some peptides, some other things attached to it that could enhance delivery to specific tissues. You could imagine uh, just, we talked about RNAi therapeutics earlier. Those are delivered lipid nanoparticles, same way the COVID vaccine is delivered also, lipid nanoparticles. And so that's another avenue for delivery. I think people, I mean, this is just really brand new stuff. And I just don't think there's been a lot that's happened here yet. There's so much to do, but there's already been, even though we're kind of early with Cas13, I think there's already some pretty exciting work. There's some pretty creative work right now in this area. So there's work from Phil Santangelo's group at Georgia Tech, where they showed that I think it was mRNA of Cas13, they can deliver it by inhalation. So they were doing this for targeting organisms that only live as RNA. So they were targeting flu and SARS-CoV-2, which has an RNA genome. It doesn't exist as DNA. And they basically just aerosolized this mRNA, which perhaps had been modified in some way. And they show that it was effective at preventing symptomatic disease with COVID-19. And so, I mean, that's, that's just really creative. That's thinking about, okay, where's the place we need to deliver to? You know, the lungs are the primary, primary site of infection. So let's make the mice breathe, breathe this thing in. And that, I mean, if you think about it, even for, for humans, I mean, that would be really people are afraid of getting needles or, you know, things like that. Like that's a pretty like easy way to deliver a, a drug. And so very creative, but again, early days, I, I think there's, there's a lot of work ahead uh, for delivery. Terrific. So throughout the conversation, you've, you've really been talking a lot about, um, you know, how these could be applied, but I, I guess I'd wanted to ask a question or let you talk a little bit more about what other impacts on future therapeutics and or diagnostics do you see this work is having? I mean, we talked obviously through conditioning cells, you know, targeted therapies to, to tumors, et cetera. That's a very good question, a very open-ended question. So I think on, di- on the diagnostics front is, is a little bit easier to address, right? Because we've already seen, I mean, less so with CAS13D, which is what our three groups here worked on together but more with some of the other Cas13 orthologs like Cas13A and B. And I know that 
your group, Brett at NEB, you guys have been very involved with labs all over the place with the Cas13 diagnostics, making Cas13 A and B enzymes. And so I think that's, I mean, that's very cool because you can, you know, people have now shown you can freeze dry it. It's, you can deliver the stuff in the field and it can work basically anywhere. It can be quickly reprogrammed. So if you have to update for a Omicron variant or something like that, and you have to change out the guide RNA, it's, it's really simple. So I think Cas13 is undeniably with techniques like Sherlock from say Feng Zhang's lab already had a very impressive impact on the field of diagnostics. So I think about diagnostics, I'll just put my spin on it because, so a lot of what my lab does are these, you know, high throughput functional genomic screens, right? We do this, you know, like using Cas9 to target every gene in the genome, understand what genes are important for, yeah, like cancer drug resistance or immunotherapy resistance. And again, going, thinking about what are the unique properties of, of Cas13? I mean, this is a little bit different than what we've been talking about with the protein and chemically modified guides, but I think we're very excited to use Cas13 also to screen non-coding RNAs, again, these nuclear localized RNAs. And you might say, well, why is that relevant to diagnostics? We don't know a whole lot about some of these, these classes of RNA, like these long non-coding RNAs or circular RNAs or enhancer RNAs or a million other RNAs that, that are in the nucleus. And I think because we can, as your group did, you guys stuck this NLS tag, this nuclear localization sequence on Cas13, we can just direct it wherever we want. In the bacteria, there's no nucleus, right? So we can just sculpt the protein to go wherever we want it to go. It doesn't require other proteins. It just needs Cas13 to kind of do its thing. And so for me, I think that that's a very exciting thing that we could potentially discover, say, diagnostic prognostic markers in that non-coding RNA space that might be useful, yeah, for different indications, different types of cancer, things, things like this. So that's probably, hopefully that, that showcases one thing that's actually happening and then one perhaps more, more future-oriented thing. Great, that's terrific. So, so what's next for you sort of, or immediately next, if you, if you could talk about that? Do you have any sort of studies planned using the, the approach from the paper? What's new and exciting you guys are working on? Absolutely. Yeah. So I, I think going back to one of the unsolved challenges for us is really is delivery. And so we want to try and move this. I think the paper was really amazing because we went from kind of simple cell lines to primary human, you know, donor derived T cells. So I think we covered a lot of ground in one, in one study, but obviously we want to try and take this stuff in vivo. And so we're thinking right now about how to use Cas13 in vivo, mostly in, in mouse models. What's the delivery look like? How do we efficiently um, package this? You know, very basic things like, you know, do you deliver, is protein delivery the right way to go? Or is it much easier to do what a lot of people in the field are doing, which is deliver Cas13 as mRNA and encapsulate that along with these chemically modified guide RNAs? And so we actually have some new graduate students that just joined the lab in the last year who started making some of these um, lipid nanoparticles. We know very little about it, but it's been really fun learning about delivery because I think you can either kind of stay with what you know, which for us is like CRISPR screens and some, you know, transcriptome engineering and things using existing enzymes, or you can try and push yourself, I think, a little bit outside of your comfort zone. And so we're, we're doing that. We'll see how, how successful it may or may not be. But I think doing this in complex tissues, understanding can we deliver to particular regions of the brain, the spinal cord, we're very interested in developing single cell technologies to interface with this. And so can we look at how Cas13 affects different, if we target the same transcript in different cell types, 
within the spinal cord, do we see differences in ventral versus dorsal regions, motor versus sensory regions? And again, always thinking about both the science aspect, but also kind of a, a translational aspect. So for us, a lot of the focus is, is moving in vivo now with these tools, but it wouldn't have been possible, I think, without doing this, this kind of really initial work with you guys. I actually wanted to back up and ask a follow-up question about the temporal control of the guide RNAs themselves. So I was just curious, like, what is the level of attenuation that you can achieve? You sort of talked about hours versus days or hours versus weeks. How specifically would you be able to sort of fine tune that in terms of the actual delivery and longevity of the treatment? Oh, that's a fantastic question. I think there's actually many ways that you can potentially attenuate it. So I think the obvious one with the people who are on this call or podcast right here would be with, you know, different chemical modifications. You, certainly in the paper, if you just look at the, the data that we have, you can see that there are, there are different levels in the kind of the cell surface proteins that we target, which we can easily read out with facts-based assays, uh, flow cytometry-based assays. You, you can see that there are different levels due to different modifications. I think that's a very straightforward conclusion. You can take, you can take it's a takeaway you can grab from the paper and then apply in, in your work. I think there's actually other ways that we haven't really explored so well right now. So we, a lot of our previous work that led to this current paper was really about what makes for efficient guide RNAs, what makes for the best guide RNA for the best knockdown. We just, that's what we were focused on. You know, how do you get 100% target knockdown? But through doing that and some more recent studies we've done in the lab, we've also been able to learn from kind of large data sets, what if I don't have a guide RNA that's perfectly matching maybe the target, but what if I strategically introduce maybe one or two bases where I have a mismatch? Can I titer the effects of the Cas13 knockdown? So we normally think like, oh no, I mean, that's, that's terrible. We want to avoid, you know, we want the guide RNA to be perfectly matched. We want it to perfectly match just the target, avoid any other transcript in the transcriptome. That's, that's like kind of what we're, we're thinking, high on target activity, zero off target activity, but there actually might be places where it's advantageous to design maybe certain kinds of variant guide RNAs that can titer the effect of, of Cas13. And so that's something we have some initial work going on in the lab. We have nothing that we've published yet, but I think that could actually could be very useful because we've certainly, in some cases, we achieved very effective knockdown and maybe you want to you dial it down. And I think compared to say Cas9 knockout, this is a nice advantage of Cas13. Not to say you couldn't do this with Cas9. There's techniques like CRISPR inhibition that allow you to do this, but you know this is not a zero-sum game. There's going to be different approaches that are going to have different pros and cons. And at this really early stage in the genome engineering revolution, whatever you want to call it, I think we need to have as many approaches, many, as many arrows in our quiver as possible. I just wanted to add on to that. This is something we've thought about um, at Synthigo actually quite a bit, which is actually developing temporal control of, of editing through guide RNA chemistry. And so we actually did put out a paper in Nature Communications last year for a process we call CRISPR-OFF, where essentially we engineer photocleavable linkers into SPCAS9 guide RNAs, and then we can use light to control when the editing can actually be turned off. And then we presented a, a poster earlier this year at Keystone showing that we can also do the opposite, which is turn on the guide RNA as well. So, you know, this is all controlled through light. So obviously in vitro, in cells, it's very easy to shine light 
uh, onto the cells and get this CRISPR on-off activity in their exact temporal control on a guide RNA. It would be interesting to see if this is possible to do in vivo. Maybe you could just shine a light on somebody. <laughs> I don't know. But And of course, Neville, if you're interested, uh, we'd be interested in potentially collaborating uh, around this on CAS13 as well. So just let us know. Absolutely. I think I actually did see this this paper. I, I've got to take a, a closer look. And I think that's very cool. I, I, I think there's probably a whole class of chemical modifications, elements that we could add to the guide RNA, maybe even sequence elements that extend half-lives. All of this, I think, is probably, I mean, it sounds like Synthigo has, has already started exploring this, but I think there's probably so much room to do things. I wonder if we could also have, you know, chemically, the same way you have the photocleavable stuff, I wonder if there's like chemical cages you might have too. Yeah, that's that's super exciting. That's uh, awesome. I have to check that out a little bit more and we'll, we'll think about that. I was curious if you've if you've discovered any silver linings within the sort of pandemic era, you know, we've all been we've all been living in this brave new world for the last 18 months or more. And I think a lot of people have found the time to reflect or to reconnect or maybe just to slow down a little bit. I know that academic life, research life, I'm sure life at the New York Genome Research Institute Center is super fast paced. And um, I was just curious, have you found any sort of silver linings for yourself personally or professionally in the pandemic? Definitely. I think, you know, <laughs> it's hard to, you know, I, I'm laughing just because I think this this pandemic is just like everybody. It's just gone on so long and it's just so unexpectedly crazy and absolutely tragic to see whatever it's the, the current totals are, 800,000 you know, people in the United States have lost their life. I, I don't know the numbers worldwide, but it's, I'm sure, much higher than that. Yeah. So I, I think, I mean, I think the, the, the number one thing that comes out of this, this pandemic is, is a great tragedy, which is very tragic. But I think the most positive thing that's come out for me really is to see kind of what the scientific community is capable of. Obviously, you know, the collaboration we're talking about right here, we had great technology tools that facilitated none of us met in person while putting together this, this study, right? We just sent things back and forth and we got, we got science done. With the pandemic, there's been so much amazing translational science and it's been done so quickly. That's the other thing that's been just astounding. You know, just think of these, these amazing things like the waste, wastewater testing, right? Can tell you whether a variant is circulating in a population before the population knows. Work we've done, like functional genomics of the spike protein. You know, we worked on the very first mutation in spike, D614G, and um, we're able to understand why is it more infectious? Why did it replace the original variant? And of course, there's the number one most amazing thing, which is the RNA vaccines, which saved our lives, quite literally. And so right now, it's really, I think we're just so bogged down in this just to see that we're still here, holidays coming up. I think it's, it's sad, but I, I do think as we get through this, as we get to the other end of it, which fingers crossed 2022, I think we're going to look back and see that this accelerated science climate that, that happened now actually is going to have some other very positive benefits. If you look at, for instance, you know, like BioNTech or something that made one of these COVID vaccines, they're now talking about work toward a malaria vaccine. Current malaria vaccines are not very effective. Imagine if instead of a 30% effective malaria vaccine, you had 90% effective malaria vaccine, like, like with what we have with COVID. What I hope is that a some of the things we discover here are going to have great impacts for human health in other dimensions. But again, there's just so much here, like, you know, why, why are we so ill-prepared for pandemics and things like that? There's other, I think, implications beyond science that are going to be, hopefully somebody will, will reflect on them. But at least from my perspective, where I sit, 
just really amazed at the scientific community, amazed at the people in my lab who contributed to some of the COVID science, but also just how, you know, science, this kind of like textbook scientists coming together and doing something amazing. So it's good, good to see that and good to know kind of what humans are capable of. Absolutely. It's nice to see science save the day. And I think hopefully get the recognition that it deserves for really protecting the global community. And hopefully, I think I think you're absolutely right. It would be amazing to see an mRNA vaccine against diseases like malaria or some of the sort of third world diseases that don't get the attention that they necessarily should from the scientific community at large. So that would absolutely be, I think, a silver lining. I'm going to count that as a silver lining. Yeah. I mean, the principle of mRNA really seems to be that, you know, you could target really anything. And that's that's going to really change vaccine development. If this, you know, we, we need to see more data beyond SARS-CoV-2, but this is potentially going to be really amazing for all sorts of infectious disease, maybe even cancer also. Yeah. And I think the speed with which the RNA therapeutics can adjust for changes in variants or changes in, I guess, specific mutations of individual cancers or something like that. It should be really amazing to see what comes next. Absolutely. Actually, I've become so used to RNA vaccines that when they were talking about the Omicron variant, they said something, you know, whatever, Pfizer, Moderna, they said they'll take them three months. I was like, three months to to do a new variant? Go faster than that. Come on. (laughs) But you quickly become... First, the technology is magic, and then you become used to it within uh, no time at all. Right. It's like next day shipping. (laughs) Exactly. Now I'm disappointed if I don't get it. (laughs) I I would say I have have one silver lining. I I say I would just contribute to this group. You know, I I think in some of those early days of the pandemic, they're now the early days when we were working together on this project. I think sort of looking forward to getting on Zoom calls with you guys or seeing data that you guys were generating. That was just such a high point for me in some of those very early days when we were sort of stuck in home offices um, and dealing with all kinds of other stuff in in personal and, and professional lives. Actually, you know, seeing science happen in real time in that period of time and in that environment was a, was a, was a big silver lining for me. That's so good to hear. I, I think there's so many people actually that came to us in the first days of the pandemic because we had just released kind of the, the ability to predict effective CAS 13 guides. And it was clear that a lot of people were making, you know, CAS 13 guides to target SARS-CoV-2. And the work that we were doing at that time and, and earlier CAS 13 work, I think it really disseminated out, even though in our collaborative paper, there's really only just a small bit, kind of a proof of concept of how to target the universal leader sequence that's on all the uh, subgenomic RNAs. But yeah, I, I think there's actually a lot of groups doing that based on how many emails we received for guide RNA predictions. And I don't know, Synthigo and Kevin probably know more about how many guides they've synthesized against SARS-CoV-2, but it was great that we launched the project when we did. Yeah, I'll just add on, Brett, to what you said. I'm sure NEB likes Synthigo here. You, you got a lot of inbound requests for for CAS-13 around, you know, SARS-CoV-2 diagnostics, therapeutics, you know, it was the same for us. And, you know, it's really inspirational actually to see the scientific community kind of come together, and especially labs to like just completely pivot from what their their normal comfort zone is into researching, you know, therapeutics or even the biology of, of the virus. So including yours, Neville. So it was really inspirational to, to see that. And that's definitely a silver lining for me. Yeah, we had never actually done a drug screen. We, we always just did CRISPR screens. And so we did a CRISPR screen and we were like, we can't stop here. Once we figure out what are the vulnerabilities of this virus genetically, let's target it with some actual 
actual drugs. And so, yeah, you're, you are totally right. hundred percent. Well, I think this is the longest silver linings discussion we've had in one of the podcast episodes yet. And I love it. I think that, you know, that means that there's actually a lot to celebrate amongst the tragedy. So with that, I would say thank you so much to you all. Thank you, Neville, for taking the time out of your schedule. Thanks so much, Kevin and Brett, for taking the times out of your busy schedules to be here with us today. And um, it was such a pleasure talking with you all. Great. Yeah. Thanks so much. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks, everyone. Yeah. Looking forward to uh, working all together again in the future. Thanks for listening to CRISPR Cuts. I invite you to check out the Synthigo blog, The Bench, for more great CRISPR content. Please send us any feedback you have by contacting us on Twitter. And if you want to join in as a guest on our podcast, email us at crispercuts at synthigo.com. CRISPR Cuts is a scientific podcast by Synthigo. Produced by Kevin, Minu, and me, Bobby. Additional production by Resonate Recordings. Our cover art is by Jeff Merrick. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you soon.